let's um, just pray before we Gary continues. Let's again just commit it to the Lord. Father, we thank you again for being able to be in your presence. Lord, just to hear people declare your name and how great you are. And Lord, again, just that people would say that you are the Messiah of God. You are the true saviour of the world, the one that was the lamb that came to be slain. Lord, help us to be bold in the things that we say and just in who you are. And Lord, help us to have ears and eyes open, Lord, just to hear what you would speak to us this morning. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege of listening to your word, words that were spoken by you, Lord, and are yours. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again. Lovely. Well, welcome, everyone. Great to see you. Uh, welcome, Brad. Good to see you. And Shay, good to see you back. Good to have you. Okay, well, as uh, Jeff has said, we're in Luke 9. Now, last time I spoke on Luke, I concentrated on just um, three or four verses. Um, but this time I'm going to kind of rush through a lot of it, if you like, and do a, a slight overview the things that have challenged me. So it's not, um, yeah, super deep. We're not stopping for very long, if you like, um, but going through it. And we're going to start, <clears throat> because there's so much in it, at Luke 18, actually where Jeff um, started us, if you like, in that thought, who do men say that I am, or who does the crowd say that I am? And then we're going to look to see who do you say that I am. So Luke chapter 9, and verses 18, and we're going to keep reading right down to verse 36. And it happened, as he was alone praying, this was Jesus, that the disciples joined him and asked, and Jesus asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and some say the Old Testament prophets, that they have risen again. He said to them, but who do you? say that I am. Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ of God. And he strictly warned them and commanded them, tell no one of this. Then he said in verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For, whatever, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and his father's and of the holy angels." But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass eight days later after these sayings that Jesus took Peter, John and James and went up to a mountain and prayed. And as he prayed, his appearance of his face was altered. His robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and they were then fully awakened when they saw the glory and the two men who stood with them. 
Then it happened as they were departing from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, is it good for us to be here? Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came over and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days of any of the things that they had seen. Just skip over to verse 57. Now it happened that when they were journeying down the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another, then Jesus said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, him, No one having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And we'll leave it there. A lot to read, a lot to go through. We'll see how we go. That clock says nearly five to five. So I'll use my own. Okay, verse 18. Now it happened as he was alone praying, he and his disciples, he asked them a question. Who do the crowds say that I am? Peter's confession. Who do the crowds say that I am? Now, we know from the other Gospels, we have Matthew 16 and Mark chapter 8, that this setting was that they're walking down the road. They're on the way to Caesarea Philippi, and they were going with the disciples, walking there. Uh, that is located north of the Sea of Galilee on the slopes of Mount Hermon. And so they're elevated a few thousand feet up. Uh, and so it would have been a time when the disciples finally were alone with Jesus, walking to Caesarea. And so he answers or asks this question of his disciples. Some commentators say that is, it's the final exam for his disciples. The answer to the first is expressed, what is the human um, opinion concerning himself, and the second is answered as one is expressed of the divine revelation given to Peter of who he really is. So we can picture this, can't we, as they're walking down the road, or not a road, they're up on a mountain. Beautiful scenery, and Jesus, you know, you get 12 men together and they're talking away, but all of a sudden Jesus asks them a question. Who does the crowd say that I am? Now, that's an easy question to answer. No one's under pressure with a question like that. The disciples all seem to chime in, don't they? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist, risen again, which actually is quite hard because Jesus was around with John the Baptist. So why the crowds were saying that, I'm not sure. And some say you're one of the other great prophets. And so they all, all chime in. Now, to any rabbi, to any teacher, that would be fantastic, wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been? If you were a rabbi of that day or a teacher of that day or a scribe of that day, and they asked their followers, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're like uh, Elijah, some say Moses, some say Jeremiah, some say Daniel. 
he would be in a great spot. That would be fantastic. It's like me walking down the street and with my friends and saying, hey, and pastoring, who do men say that I'm like? And some say, oh, A.W. Tozer, some say Spurgeon, some say uh, David Platt, some say Francis Chan. I'd be so pleased and happy with myself to be even put in a sentence with them men. And so it is with Jesus. To be put in that same sentence should have been great, but it wasn't because Jesus is far greater far greater than these men and Old Testament prophets. But then as Jesus, as he always does, as uh, probably laughing at what people, what the crowd thought uh, of him and who he was, Jesus goes personal. And Jesus always goes personal. Whether it's the woman touching his cloak, whether it's the lepers, whether it's the rich young ruler, it'll all come down to one man or one woman. And so he asks them, as they're walking along, but who do you say that I am? Notice that it's not everybody now joining in, like on the first question. Their leader, if you like, Peter, decides he'll go for it. He'll answer that question. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was his answer, and we know from the other Gospels The Lord said to him, flesh and blood did not uh, give you that answer, but my Father in heaven. It was a divine revelation. Yes, Peter, you are correct. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the one whom you have been waiting for. And when you think about that question, as Jeff has already pondered as he opened up, it's a very, very important question that we get right. We cannot afford, when Jesus asks us, what do you think of me? We cannot get it wrong. Going through Luke alone, the gospel just of Luke alone, we can find out who he is very clearly. In chapters 6, 9, 12, 16, 17, 19, and 21, they all say that he is the Son of Man. In Luke chapter 1, we know Gabriel calls him the Son of the Most High. In chapter 9, which we'll look at, the Father from heaven says, He is my Son, hear him. An angel in chapter 2 said he's the Saviour of the world. Even the demons acknowledged him. He is the Holy One of God in chapter 4. And he is the Son of God as well in the same chapter. The crowd somehow had missed it, that he was the Christ. They came to the wrong conclusion on who he was. And we cannot afford to come to that wrong conclusion. And who is Christ? Who is he? And so hopefully today, if you want to go through that book of Luke, you'll find out very clearly who Jesus is. After this, it would have come to a shock for the disciples. They would have been flawed because straight away after that revelation that you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, it comes in verse 22. But this son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and then be killed and raised on the third day. You are the Christ, and now I'm to suffer, be rejected, and killed. This is a roller coaster chapter, if you like, for the disciples and us. That word there, must, he must suffer, shows that Jesus' death was not a mistake. 
and it was not a tragedy. It was a divine plan, and this is confirmed even in verses 31, which we'll quickly look at as well, when the Lord talked to Moses and Elijah. What were they talking about? His death, his suffering, his resurrection. It must happen. What must happen? Jesus said of himself, he is going to suffer. To suffer what? Is it the death? Well, that's later on because he says he is going to be killed. So that word suffer is not in the Greek term associated with death. Death, It's associated with suffering. So in this context, what is he suffering as he's looked at it? Well, there are many things we know through the New Testament that Jesus suffered. But here it is the rejection of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. That word the, bowling in all of that that group, if you like, these separate groups, but Jesus with the at the start and then elders, scribes, and chief priests is putting them all together. He's going to be rejected by a group of men who should have known better. Remember, at one hand, the crowds thought he was a great prophet. The disciples say that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. But when it comes to this group of men, who do they say he is? Well, we find out later that they say, crucify him, away with him. We will not have this man rule over us. Complete rejection of the Messiah. And so Jesus says, this is what I'm going to suffer. The rejection of the men who should have known that I have come. We find that even in Matthew 23 when he talks about Jerusalem. And in verse 37 he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones the ones who are sent to her. How often I had wanted to gather the children together as a hen gathers her chicks under the wings. But Jerusalem, you are not willing. And so it was with the men, the religious leaders of that day, did not want him. He was rejected. And so then from confessing that he is the Christ to being rejected, killed and raised, now we look at verse 23, the cost of following him. The Christ rejected, killed, and raised, and here comes the cost, the cost of following this one. He said to them all, all the disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Man, that's tough. That is tough words. In verse 23 alone, from that section from 23 to 26, we have three conditions of discipleship. The first, to deny oneself. To deny oneself. This is much more radical than simply just denying certain things in your life. It is and requires a rejection of life based on self-interest and self-fulfillment. To deny yourself and take up the cross. That is complete denial. That is tough. That is tough. The second condition involves the need to take up one's cross, and Jesus' own crucifixion, obviously, reveals to these readers in Luke more fully that the call to commitment was a call to death and a willingness to suffer. Just going through um, my Facebook page, and I'm a friend of Banner of Truth, the big publishers in England, and up comes a quote from R.C. Ryle when I was writing this. And he said this of this, 
uh, to deny oneself and to take up your cross daily and follow me. He said this. It's a quote from him. One day in hell will be worse than a whole life carrying your cross. And then thirdly, to follow me, he said, indicating that following him must be continual. It's a continual lifestyle of denying yourself and taking up your cross daily. And before we can even grasp that, and before we, we just sit down exhausted at thinking, wow, I've got to, to do all this, he goes into verse 24. And here he says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So he hits one, and then he'll hit again. He'll also hit in 25 and 26. But this is the great paradox, isn't it? First of all, to save your life means a failure to deny oneself. If you do that, you'll lose it, which means judgment in hell. But if you lose your life, deny oneself again for my sake, you will save it. Receive eternal life. That's the paradox of that verse. You save it. You want to cling on to your life and save all that you have and all that you want and, and give yourself the glory and have a selfish life. Jesus says you'll lose it and you'll suffer in hell. But whoever loses his life and lets go of everything we think we own and think we have and want, in other words, to deny oneself, you'll save it and you will receive eternal life. There's a book called The Valley of Vision written by an older man, Arthur Bennett. And he came across this, this old man who said this prayer. It's called the prayer of paradox, just like what Lord was saying about saving your life, losing it, losing it, and saving it. And he said this every day. And I thought it was so apt, it's so brilliant, the paradox life. It starts off this. This is what he prayed. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, to bear the cross is to wear the crown, and to give is to receive. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, and Thy, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, my riches in my, thy riches, sorry, in my poverty, thy glory in my humiliation. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly. The paradox of the Christian life. Then he comes straight in. The Lord comes straight into that great verse we all know. In verse 25, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And as the other Matthew 16 says, but lose his soul. What will it gain? What will we gain if we gain the whole world? Here the Saviour knew that the desires for material riches might be a powerful deterrent against full surrender, to lose that life for his sake. And so in effect, what was the Lord saying? Well, I suppose you could collect everything you desire, all the gold, all the silver, all the world, all the real estate, all the property, all the stocks, all the bonds, anything and everything. 
Suppose you did that in your frantic effort to acquire all this, and yet you missed the purpose of life. What is, what is the point? William MacDonald said this, It would be an insane bargain to sell that one short life for a few toys of dust. Charles Price tells a story in the 70s of a man in New York. He was one of the richest men there, and he died early. And the papers put this instead of, you know, quite crudely said, how much did he leave behind? How much did he leave behind when he died? And Charles Price said, well, I can answer that for you. He left everything behind. Everything. What shall it gain a man if he gained the whole world? But he lost his soul. And so from the heights of when we started, you are the Christ, to the valleys, we've got to take up our cross and follow him into that valley and that hard teaching from verse 23 to 26. And then we go up a mountain again. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up to a mountain. What are they doing? They're praying. And all of a sudden, Jesus' face in verse 29 changes. His face is altered. His robe is white and his robe is glistening. In verse 30, we find out there are two men with him, uh, Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, there are many thoughts on why there are these two men. Uh, but really, it is, there were no two witnesses that would have been greater for Israel than these two men. Moses, the greatest, uh, probably of the Old Testament. He was the most revered leader in all that nation's history the one who had led them out of slavery from Egypt, the one who um, revealed the law of God to them. Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of all of Israel, the only one of two men who didn't go through death. And here they were standing beside Christ, the two great men of Israel. Moses gave the law, Elijah guarded it. And there they were. And what were they talking about? Of two men either side of Christ, what would they have been talking about? Well, it tells us that they spoke of his decease, the Greek word there, exodus, all that which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. So they weren't just talking about his ascension or his resurrection, but what was going to happen in Jerusalem. What a conversation that would have been. And yet... And speaking of that, we have the disciples, these three men, heavy with sleep. I find it really hard to believe what kind of day they had that they could be asleep with Jesus. Obviously praying, and maybe they nod off. We know what that's like. Well, I know what that's like when you go to bed and you start praying, and you nod off. And maybe that's what happened with these three. But anyway, these two men came down, and his glory was revealed. Someone, oh, it's actually J.C. Ryle again, said this of these disciples sleeping. Let it be noted that the very same disciples who were asleep during the vision of glory were found asleep during the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Flesh and blood does, and need to be, does indeed need to be changed before we can enter into heaven. Our poor weak bodies can neither watch with Christ at a time of trial or keep awake with him and his glorification. Surely indeed our bodies need to be changed before we get to heaven. 
And then if these two witnesses were not great enough at that time, we have the third witness from heaven, his father. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And then in verse 36, we have this. The voice ceased, and it says Jesus was found alone. Beautiful little verse. Jesus was found alone. We must remember that this account centers on Jesus, like the whole of the New Testament and old, not Moses and Elijah, not Moses, Elijah and Jesus, but Jesus alone. The law and the prophets all point to him. Jesus is the essence and the heart of God's revelation and anything that distracts from Jesus alone such as Peter's suggestion in verse 33, let us build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, loses sight of the fact that believers are called Christians in the New Testaments because of the fact that Jesus alone is the one in whom we have our faith. And as I stand here, I think of that, that saying, Jesus alone. And to the left of me, we have our bread and our wine. And later on, we're going to break it. We're going to break the bread and take the wine and share in that. And I thought as I read through that, that book, uh, that verse 36, I thought of this table. It is in essence, that meeting we have, is that meeting is of Jesus alone and nothing else. For he simply said of himself, when you come, when you break the bread and take the cup, remember me. It's that simple. Just remember me. And I know I've been in churches, and I've been in this one, that sometimes we get off track of Jesus alone. We can stand up and we can talk about our holidays. I've been in a church where they've talked about the numbers they had at that time, how it was that a lady was there was 100 years old and they celebrated that. I've been in churches where it's been Jesus plus me, Jesus plus my theology, Jesus plus my axe to grind, and we lose sight of this meeting that should be so precious, and it's only Jesus alone, nothing else. We've got to stop adding to it and our opinions, and, and what we feel, and what we're trying to take back. And, and I know three churches that have done away from that service because men were ruining it. And we've got to guard it. And if I was just thinking, if the ladies, because the ladies don't participate here at Hukanui, can you pray for us men? Every morning you come, you pray that we will honour the Lord by just saying Jesus alone. You know, in Revelation, someone said that this meeting, this breaking of bread, should be like heaven. It should be a picture. What did they do in heaven? Revelation 4 says this. Well, the seraphim says, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who is and is to come. Then they sing a new song. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honour, power. You have created all things. 
And then in front of the lamb, they say, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals for you have been slain. You are the redeemed to God by your blood. Out of every tribe, tongue, people, nation, and have made us kings, priests. For and, and it carries on in verse 12. Holy is the lamb that was slain. Verse 13, blessing, honour and glory and power to him who sits on the throne. That's who we're thinking of when it comes. Just Jesus alone. May I encourage us to do that. Finally then, after this hard teaching as we've gone through, when we've looked at the cost of discipleship, then quickly in verse Yep, got time. And verse 57 to 62, as we read at the end, we have the test of discipleship. From the cost to the test, and I want to come back to Jesus alone. But we have these real hard teachings. Three men come along. One said, I will follow you, and he even called him Lord. The second said, uh, it was the Lord that called him, follow me. And the third said, I will follow you as well. Three men. So the discipleship is tested now. First, the desire for personal comfort. Second, the desire for personal riches. And third, the desire for personal relations. So 57, 58. Someone said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. I didn't read it, but in verse 52 or 53, down the thing, we have the disciples and Jesus going through Samaria, and the Samaritans rejected him. So he's just been rejected Tossed out, and a man comes. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Well, foxes have holes, birds have, uh, of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There is no personal comfort when you're following Jesus if he asks you to. It might cost us that comfort of having uh, a good bank balance, a good home, a good place to stay? Are we willing to take up that cost, if you like, if he tests us on it? This man wanted to follow him wherever he went, but we, we find that he is nowhere to be seen. It doesn't say that, and so he said this. No, he drifts away and goes away. And then the second one, Jesus calls him, so personal comfort was desired by the first man. And then Jesus calls the second man, follow me, and he says, and this is a toughie, first let me go and bury my father, and then I'll come and follow you. And to the Jew, it was very important. There's only two sets of people in the Jewish um, nation, if you like, were absolved from that duty, and that was the Nazarite vow and the high priest. But everyone else, it was their duty to bury their mother, to bury their father. But here Jesus demands an allegiance transcending even the greatest of that obligation to bury your father. I take precedence, and if you want to follow me, over that. And even though in Israel that was an obligation that you had to, Jesus asks for more. Some say, and some commentators said, well, the father's not dead. And that may be true, that he wanted to go back, because in the Jewish time they buried their dead pretty much on that first day, as Lazarus was, as we can see in the New Testament. And so maybe he was even suggesting, I'll wait till my father dies, I'll grab his money, and then it will be easier for me, with a hundred grand in the bank, to follow you. But when Jesus asks to be followed, he desires 
that personal riches must go. And then lastly, the desire for a personal relationship. Jesus said, once said, let me go back and just say goodbye. It's, if, if you were a teacher or a scribe, wouldn't you offer that? You said, yes, I'd have offered all of them. Yep, go back, bury your dad. Go back, say goodbye. But this is the discipleship tested. And Jesus said, no. He said, no, no one having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. That is really tough stuff. And the question I want to leave us as we've gone through these really hard, the cost of discipleship and then discipleship tested is, is it worth it? Or more aptly put, is he worth it? You see, I know that we get into this um, kind of routine religion, if you like, and we're tempted to settle for Sunday mornings, okay. That's what I'm giving you. And actually, even coming here on Sunday morning, Jesus, you owe me. Because I've just kind of, you know, look at me. I'm sitting here for two hours listening to him. And so we have this kind of routine Christianity that we think, this is normal, this is all I'm required to give. And so we settle for it, and we wonder why it's so dry and so hard. But I am convinced when we look, take a serious look at what Jesus really meant when he said, follow me, we'll discover that there is more pleasure to be experienced in him indescribably greater, more power to be realized with him, and much higher purpose to be accomplished for him than anything else this world has to offer. I think when you go through these hard passages, whether to let the dead bury their dead, or whether um, take up your cross daily and follow me, and you think that's really tough, but what has happened, we have taken our eye of whom we're following and whom we're trusting. It is Jesus himself. It is not to look at what we're losing in this world. It is what we're gaining when we follow Christ. And I know A.W. Tozer said, and it shocked me one time when I read him, he said, this book that we read sometimes can be black and white. It can just be print on a paper unless we experience him and walk with him. It's not just about head knowledge, he said. It's our walk and experience with the living God. And if we don't know that, then of course these tough things that we read are going to be too tough and we walk away. I'm not going to give all to Christ. I want Jesus and my relationship. I want Jesus and my career. I want Jesus and wealth. But Jesus says no. If you just have me, you will have enough. And so it is time we stop looking at what we're losing and start looking at what we are gaining in knowing and living and walking with Christ. We sing it, don't we? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow slowly dim, strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May that be our true experience, that when we look at him, 
everything else becomes as nothing. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we have this time of opening your word. Just coming here, and there's, there's, look, some of this teaching's really tough and really hard, but may we have a glimpse of you. May we just, when we sing the hymns, when we break the bread, when we take the cup, Lord, we just want to experience you and just have that thought of how great you are. We're not losing anything in this world, Father. No, we have gained the best of the best, our lovely Lord Jesus. Help our hearts to understand that and our minds and our heads to really grasp the fact that you are everything and you are worth giving everything away just to follow you. May that be our prayer today from our hearts. And as we break the bread, as we take the cup, may it be Jesus alone today, that we just remember him from his birth to the cross to the resurrection, all that he is. We'll never run out of time speaking about how great and wonderful and reminding you how wonderful he is. Father, may it be today that we worship aright. We ask it in the Saviour's name. Amen. Amen.